Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing. Well, thank you so much for that uh, warm welcome. It is, it is a delight to be here. I've never been on your campus, so I've been looking forward to this. And of course, we have many dear friends here, and it's wonderful to know that we're working together for the sake of the kingdom. We're, we know in our culture today we're a minority, don't we? And we work together in the gospel, and what a, what a thrill and joy that is. If you have a, a Bible today or a device, you can turn to uh, Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we pray now that you would come and help us as we examine your word. Please speak through me. Speak to all of our hearts. May your Holy Spirit come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearly three years ago, on August 17, 2012, my wife Diane, sitting right here, as Bruce mentioned, fell from her bicycle. We still don't know what happened because no one saw her fall. Anyway, she fell, hit her head, was knocked unconscious, unconscious and uh, there was bleeding on her brain. So I, I went to the hospital to see her. I was pretty dazed at, at the time. And the surgeon came out and said she needed a craniotomy to relieve the bleeding on her brain. In the first couple days, her life hung in the balance. But then it became clear that she would survive, which we were thankful for. But we didn't know what she would be like. You know, Diane doesn't remember anything from that first month after her accident. Would her mental capacities be restored? Would she just be a shell of her former self? People told me all kinds of things during those days. But one of the doctors, who I found out later was a believer, one of the doctors, he was really a resident, young, a young guy, he came up to me and said, some people will come up to you and tell you she'll be completely healed. And other people will come up to you and tell you she'll never be the same. But he said, the fact is, no one knows what she will be. We don't know. No one knows. Indeed, people did tell me both things. She'll be healed. She'll never be the same. But while all this was happening, people were praying. Our church, Clifton Baptist Church, was fervently praying. And the Southern community was praying. And I know many friends here at Southeastern, you were praying for us as well. We received in those days so many expressions of love, I will never forget the love and the prayers that were poured out on us in those days. I knew, I knew that God was sovereign over what happened 
to Diane. I, I didn't doubt that for a second. That's not something I struggled with, was God in control. I, I, but I, I also knew that her life was in God's hands to live or to die, to be healthy or not. But I also believed that prayers made a difference, that God answers prayer. God is sovereign, but prayer, prayer is not a throwaway thing. It isn't as if prayers don't matter because God is sovereign. No, the prayers mattered. Prayer makes a difference. God uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. You know, I was comfort, comforted in thinking no matter what happens to Diane, it won't be because people haven't prayed enough for her. I, I thought so many prayers have been offered on her behalf, and that was a great comfort and strength for me. God wonderfully answered our prayers. Diane has been restored 95% from her accident, and, and that was an amazing uh, blessing to me and an and a indication of God's faithfulness. So one of the stories that helped me during that time is Acts chapter 12 where Herod Agrippa puts James to death and Peter is rescued by an angel. So I think we see in the story the importance of prayer and, and the sovereignty of God. And, and that's my sermon today, prayer and the sovereignty of God. So let's read that story together. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Version, starting in verse 1. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street. And immediately the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. You're crazy, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. 
Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. He had been very angry with the Tyrians and Sidonians. Together they presented themselves before him. They went over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and through him they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. Then God's message, God's word flourished and multiplied. Today, I want to lift out three truths from this passage. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that sometimes believers suffer terribly. Sometimes believers suffer terribly. Even when we pray for deliverance, sometimes there's great suffering. We see here that Herod executed James, the brother of John the Apostle. The Herod in view here, by the way, is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great, right? A little bit of review here, right? Herod, Herod the Great is the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born, when Jesus was a baby. Herod the Great is, is the Herod who murdered Matthew chapter 2, the babies in Bethlehem. We also need to distinguish Herod Agrippa I from Herod Antipas, because we read about Herod Antipas in the Gospels, don't we? Herod Antipas is the one who is responsible for murdering John the Baptist. Jesus met Herod Antipas, right? On the day of his death, Pilate sent Jesus over, and Herod Antipas that, that night, day uh, mocked, mocked Jesus Christ didn't he? But this is a different Herod. This is Herod Antipas I. He ruled from 37 to 44 AD. So we have kind of the time period there, 37 to 44. He was well known for his devotion to the law, and he was actually quite popular with the Jews. Well, we see one of the reasons for his popularity here. He killed James, the brother of John, because it was politically popular to do so. So uh, this, this James, the brother of John, was part of Jesus' inner circle, right? Jesus spent special time with, with, with Peter, James, and John. Uh, the, the, this, is, this is the James and John who said they wanted to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus in his kingdom, and who said they were willing to suffer with Jesus. James suffered very early. Are you struck by anything in reading verse 2? The execution of James described there? So laconic, so terse, no explanation is given. 
No background is sketched in. In one quick sentence, we read that James was killed, and that's it. But as readers, we can fill in the significance, can't we? James presumably had a wife. He probably had children. He certainly had many friends who loved him dearly. His death must have come as a hammer blow to his brother John. The church in Jerusalem must have been reeling at his death. Imagine what would happen if one student at Southeastern, if even one student were put to death for the sake of Jesus' name. Imagine how that would affect this community. Yes, Jesus predicted it, didn't he? But the significance of it was felt in a powerful way when someone was taken from them. He was so young, probably in his 30s when he was put to death, so young, so much potential for the sake of the gospel. Now, the text doesn't say so, but I think we can say, see if you agree with me, we know the church was praying for him in prison. We know they were praying for him. The church did not have a mechanical view of God's sovereignty. They knew his life was in danger. They knew that prayers make a difference. They, they knew that God answers prayer. But their prayers weren't answered, at least for him to live. God said no. And, and what do we learn from this? Certainly God does answer prayer. Certainly we're to pray fervently to God. But prayers aren't a formula. It isn't as if God fulfills a contract when we pray. God's sovereignty is inscrutable. We aren't given easy answers to the sufferings of life. It's important to remember as pastors and ministers and educators and missionaries, we can't predict the ways of God. We don't always get the answer we desire when we pray. Sometimes, sometimes babies die. Some people who would make great parents can't conceive children. Some people who are terrible parents and who abuse their children have many children. Often those who prosper in life aren't the righteous, but the wicked. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15, in my futile life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. And then Ecclesiastes 8:14. Here is a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is futile. I heard the story of a woman who had cancer, a believer. When the doctors opened her up for surgery, the cancer was gone, amazingly. The family, after the surgery, praised God. What an answer to prayer. But during the surgery, 
she got an infection, and that infection killed her. How frustrating, how frustrating, how mysterious. God's ways aren't our ways. His wisdom isn't our wisdom. We pray fervently for God to answer our request. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But we don't put our trust in our prayers. We put our trust in God. We pray to Him, don't we? Our prayers aren't a credit card that we, that we uh, cash in so that we get the answer we want. Instead, we put our trust in our Father. We, we make our requests known to Him, and He answers as He will in His wisdom. We trust Him for the outcome, don't we? We know that He knows what's best for our lives. We, we pray from our limited wisdom and our perspective. Second, second truth in this passage. Sometimes God answers our prayers in dramatic ways. Sometimes God answers our prayers in dramatic ways. So we see this in verses 3 through 19. So this event probably took place in the early 40s. It's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's probably April. James was executed. Peter's in prison. He's next in line. Herod really wanted to ensure that Peter didn't get away. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. There's no way he could escape with four squads of soldiers watching him. No way. He even slept between two soldiers at night. And other guards watched the prison door on the outside. So the narrator's telling us there's no way he can get out. How's Peter feeling about the situation? Well, he doesn't seem to be terribly worried because when the angel comes, he's sleeping soundly, isn't he? You know how it is if you're worried about something, you toss and turn all night during your sleep. Peter's not doing that. He's asleep. And, and there's no evidence in the story that Peter expected to be delivered, right? Why would he? James was just put to death. In fact, when the angel comes to deliver him, what does Peter think? It's a dream. That's what he thinks. He doesn't think it's real. He, he doesn't, there's no indication that Peter was saying, I knew, I knew an angel would come and save me. Peter isn't rebuked for lack of faith either, is he? The angel doesn't say to him in the story, why are you surprised? You, you knew I'd come. You should have known that. So, for the health and wealth gospel people, you know, you may not struggle with that here, but the, that's the most prominent false gospel in the world. For the health and wealth gospel people, this story doesn't work because Peter is delivered even though he doesn't expect to be saved and delivered from death. I guess, I guess you don't always need faith to be delivered. Still, What's the church doing while Peter was in prison? They're praying fervently for him. They know that God uses prayer to accomplish his sovereign purposes. God is our loving Father, and we bring everything to him. Do you do that? God is our loving Father, and we bring everything to him in prayer. As Philippians says, we let him know our requests, knowing that he cares for us. 
and he loves us. And we know prayer matters because God has appointed prayer as one of the means by which he accomplishes his purposes. And God answers the prayer in this case by sending his angel to deliver Peter from prison. Well, as I said, Peter doesn't expect a miracle. He doesn't even know what is happening in his real life. But when the angel leaves him on the street, it takes that long. Isn't that amazing? It's only when the angel leaves him on the street that he knows, oh, this is really happening. By the way, God does work miracles, but not at every point in the story, right? But finally, in verse 10, he leaves him on his own to find his way to the house in the city. The angel doesn't walk him all the way to John Mark's house. After all, Peter knows his way about the city. Peter, it's not like if I were in this city, I don't know my way around here, first time I've been here, but Peter knows his way around. The angel isn't his GPS, right? In verse 17, we're told that Peter goes to another place and hides from Herod. So what's the lesson for us here? Miracles are the exception, aren't they? We don't expect a miracle every second of the day, do we? We're to use wisdom and the ordinary means that God gives us. Peter doesn't walk into Jerusalem the next day and walk into the city and say, try and get me, right? He hides, doesn't he? God delivered him miraculously, but he doesn't presume on that, does he? He does the wise, ordinary thing to do. So, so are we to do. We're, we're to use wisdom, aren't we? We're to use the means that God has appointed for ordinary life. We, we trust God's sovereignty, and we lock our houses, and we, we, we wear seatbelts. We, we, we study for exams, at least we hope so, right? And, and the other thing that's interesting about this miracle, Herod doesn't know that it happened. Herod is convinced, Herod is convinced that the guards colluded to let Peter out and the, and the guards are executed. So, so when God does a miracle, a sign and a wonder, it's not always apparent to unbelievers. There, there's no way that Herod was convinced that there was a miracle there. So the, the, the evidence isn't clear, is it, to unbelievers that Peter was miraculously delivered because they're convinced that this, this is the work of the guards. Back to the church. What are they doing all this? During the, all this, they're praying. They're praying fervently for Peter's release. Fervently praying. And, and Luke tells us what happened when Peter is freed. When Peter comes to John Mark's house, Rhoda is so excited, she forgets to open the gate for him. She rushes into the house and says, Peter, Peter's at the door. And when she says that, they say, you know, they're not just holy, pious people. They are holy, but they're ordinary people, aren't they? The early Christians were ordinary people, having ordinary relationships. And what do they say? You're crazy. You've lost it, Rhoda. Maybe you've prayed too long tonight. You're out of it. He's not here. Maybe it's his angel or something, but, you know, go get a drink or something. You're, 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 you need a glass of water. 
Well, Luke clearly thinks the story is humorous. Peter just keeps knocking until they let him in. Now, I've heard preachers say the point of the story is the church lacked faith. They should have believed what Rhoda told them. But I think that misses the point. We've already seen that James wasn't delivered. Prayer doesn't guarantee deliverance. The church didn't know what God would do. The church knew that prayer wasn't a formula. Luke tells the story because it's humorous and because it's so amazing. Plus, if it is a story about lack of faith, even if you take it that way, then God delivered Peter anyway, didn't he? He answered the prayer without faith. I don't think that's right, but in any case, he was delivered. Sometimes God delivers his people in amazing ways. My dearest friend, Bruce Ware, teaches theology at Southern. Many of you know that name about 10 years ago. He was 18 feet up, cutting some branches down, grabbed a branch of a pine tree, and the, and the, and the branch of the tree pulled him off the ladder. And he fell 18 feet down, just missed a retaining wall, if he'd hit that retaining wall, he almost certainly would have died. He broke his pelvis. He broke a couple ribs. He was back at it in a couple weeks. Praise God. I mean, that's an amazing story, isn't it? I have another friend. All these stories are about falling off heights for some reason. But I have a very good friend in Minnesota who's a painter. He was, he didn't do things rightly. You know, he was up on the second, the first roof, going up to the second roof. Didn't block off the ladder right. In a hurry. Happens, doesn't it? But use, use ordinary human means. <laughs> but he didn't. Fell 20 feet on his back onto the driveway. Didn't break a bone. Didn't break a bone. So... In those days, I was in Minnesota. The pastor said to him, you are a tough guy. And he said, no, I'm not. God is good. <laughs> God delivered me. Or another story, one of our, another colleague at Southern, dear friend, Ted Cable, his son John was working on a roof. He slid off a roof some 30 feet. Again, minor injuries. <laughs> Sometimes God delivers in his sovereignty in amazing ways when people should be dead. He, de he delivered my wife, didn't he? He delivered Peter. He's delivered many of you. But we can't predict. We can't predict what will happen. God's sovereignty, as I said before, it's inscrutable, isn't it? So God calls upon us. We don't know what the future will hold, but he calls upon us to trust him each day and to pray fervently. It's obvious our country is becoming more hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fewer people are becoming Christians. The culture is contrary to us in many ways. But we don't know the future. God can turn things around. He can turn things around if he wants to in one day. So we pray. We pray that God would shower his mercy on us. We pray that he'd save sinners. We pray that he'd revive churches. He can do that. 
We, we humbly and we boldly ask him to do it. We don't presume he'll do it, but we pray he'll do it. He did it in Louisville before, where I'm from. He did it again. He can do it again. And this is a little story about Louisville in 1905. Louisville, Kentucky claimed the most remarkable revival in the city's history with conversions numbering 4,000 and 58 businesses closing for noonday prayer meetings by March of 1905. The Presbyterians felt that the awakening was statewide. At the First Baptist Church of Paducah, out in western Kentucky, the devoted ministry of Dr. J.J. Cheeks ended with a blessing of over a thousand new members in 1905, just before he went home to the Lord. We pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done in your city, in our city, in the states, in the country, in the world because God is for us and not against us. We pray to him and ask him to fulfill his word. We trust in him, whether we're like James and put to death, or whether we're like Peter and we're delivered. One, one last point, and it's quick. One last point, and it is this. No one no one finally triumphs over the Lord. No opponent of God finally triumphs over the Lord. Or another way to put it is all our prayers are eventually answered. All our prayers are eventually answered. So this is the last five or six verses. So the story begins with Herod Agrippa killing James, the apostle. Herod's praised by the people for doing this. <clears throat> he goes up north. He, he travels to Tyre and Sidon in the north. We read they want to get into Herod's good graces. Herod's annoyed with them for some reason. They needed the food that his kingdom could provide. So when Herod gives a speech, the people flatter him, don't they? By saying they, he speaks with the voice of a God, listen, they don't believe a word they're saying. They're they're just flattering him. They don't really believe it's a voice of a God. But Herod is so proud and so self-absorbed, he takes it seriously. He takes the glory to himself. He really thinks he's that good. It's just flattery. That's what's going on there. Since he sees himself as a God, God strikes him dead. So, what's the point of the story? Why, why are we told this story? I think this is the purpose in the narrative. Those who kill God's own will be judged. Don't think anyone can get away with laying their hands on God's people if they don't repent. Don't think they can get away with that, whether they're in Syria, Iran, Sudan, China, or wherever it is. Those who lay their hands on God's people will be judged. Because it's an answer to our prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The point of the story isn't God always puts to death immediately wicked kings. That's not the point of the story. The point is evil will not ultimately triumph. Ultimately, God will judge the wicked. The wicked may put believers to death, but God at the end will put them to death. The Herods of this world may kill Christians, but God will finally destroy them. Evil may triumph for an hour, 
but only for an hour. Those who persecute believers will face the wrath of God. They'll face the sword of God's judgment. So, my final exhortation, let's be faithful to keep praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God may not answer that prayer in the way that we expect, but he finally will answer it. No prayer is forgotten. No prayer is thrown away. We pray to our Father asking him to answer prayer for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of his great name. Let's pray. Father, what a comfort it is to know that you rule and reign over our lives and that you love us and care for us and watch over us every, every hour, every minute, every second. And Lord, that we can trust you and that we're to pray to you and ask you to bring in your kingdom, to fulfill your purposes in our lives and in our churches. Lord, we do pray that your kingdom will come and your will will be done. We pray that you would give us courage and confidence because of your sovereignty. And we pray that we would be fervent in praying to our kind and loving Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.